Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, a plan to strip mine near the Okefenokee Swamp moves forward, even as opposition from environmentalists grow. Later in the program, a Rogers and Hammerstein classic comes to the local stage. But first, it's the largest blackwater swamp in North America and the lifeblood of the St. Mary's and Suwannee Rivers. But the 400,000-acre Okefenokee Swamp is also right next to a proposed strip mine that opponents say threatens the health of this critically important wilderness. I'm joined now by three people deeply familiar with the Okefenokee and its value. Logan Cross, chair of the Sierra Club of Northeast Florida. Welcome, Logan. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you. Mark Woods, a Florida Times Union columnist and author of Lassoing the Sun, A Year in America's National Parks. Hey, Mark. Good morning. And in just a minute, Joshua Marks, we're going to be joined by him on the line, Atlanta-based environmental attorney and longtime advocate for the Okefenokee. Uh, Logan, I'm going to start with you. The Okefenokee Swamp dominates our border, but the mining issue has not always dominated headlines. Why should people care about this issue? Well, there are a lot of reasons that people in South Georgia and Northeast Florida should be very concerned about this. I'll be glad to go through a number of items if you will allow me. Yeah. Okay. Well, one of them that I think that that they should consider is the Okefenokee Swamp is the headwaters of the St. Mary's and Suwannee Rivers. And the bulk of the water that flows southward out of the swamp goes to the Suwannee, but a large portion also goes to the St. Mary's River. And the St. Mary's River water level rises and falls depending on the amount of rain that's in the swamp. Now, there is some thinking that if the mining is allowed to proceed as planned, that it could breach the eastern kind of boundary of the basin that contains the swamp, allowing for an outflow of water. Well, if that happens, it's conceivable that the St. Mary's River could become essentially a glorified creek. So that should be of concern to people. Now, a lot of people who've lived in the area and some people who do travel into Clay County and Bradford counties will be able to see that the areas where Phosphate mining and sand mining was allowed to go unrestrained for many years. Some of those areas now look like moonscape. And the other thing that's that's happened down there that's very visible, the many lakes that dotted the area around Hawthorne and Keystone Heights, many of them have dried up or are drying up. This has prompted the state to go so far as to fund a project to pump water from Black Creek to Lake Brooklyn through a 17-mile pipeline. And this is in the Keystone Heights area of Florida, right? right. I'm bringing this up as an example of this is what can happen when you do unrestrained mining. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we fear happening up in South Georgia. The other thing that I would finally like to make along those lines that I think should be relevant for the people in this region is the Floridan aquifer that serves this area on down South Florida also extends up into South Georgia. And the Okefenokee sits atop that aquifer. Um, If, let's say again, the basin that contains the swamp is breached in some way, that might change the amount of water that the swamp does contribute to the aquifer. So that in turn could eventually affect some people in this area who depend on that aquifer. Mark Woods, uh, Logan points out some rather technical reasons why we should care. Um, But you have covered, you know, the Okefenokee also just from kind of a uh, human standpoint. um, What is there to appreciate about this place? Obviously, you've done a lot of um, written appreciations for wild places around the country in the work that you've done. But what's special about the Okefenokee? Um, Yeah, I mean, you can argue that it's there's no place quite on earth like it. I mean, that's kind of the you know, it's uh, uh, up for UNESCO World Heritage Site now. That's been moving forward. Uh, it's basically been a 40-year process, but it's getting close, and that might happen later this year. And because of its size, 700 square miles, and preservation, it's it's a really unique thing that we don't think that much about, I think, because it's across our border, and it's, you know, it's and people hear swamp, and they think, you know, it's, you know, what's the big deal? Um, and, you know, this is not mining, but I don't think we have to look too far. Just look to our south, to the Everglades, to see, you know, what 
can happen if you damage something that's worked naturally for eons and how hard it is to, or even impossible to go back to what it was. So I think that's, you know, I don't understand all the science of this, but the people who do, when I, when I read like the Fish and Wildlife Service says, this poses a risk of permanent and irreversible impacts. To me, that's pretty, that's a big red flag right there. When scientists are saying that in yeah. their evaluation. So the strip mine um, would be adjacent to on the east side of the Okefenokee Swamp. Um, Joshua Marks, I want to bring you into this conversation. This would be a strip mine for titanium, which is used to whiten products, everything from paint and plastic, um, but also, as you informed me, Oreo cookies. <laughs> That's right, Ann. Um, when I started working on the threat of mining next to the Okefenokee back in the 1990s, I was shocked that we were putting one of our greatest natural treasures at risk for a junk food product. Um, one that I happened to have loved growing up. Um, but yeah, if food products are one of the main uses for titanium dioxide. So in addition to Oreo cookies, the M's on your M&M's are whitened with titanium dioxide. Um, and, and one thing, and I just want to clarify, there's a lot of confusion as to the location of the mine. Um, Trail Ridge, which is where they want to do the mining, is actually the eastern hydrologic boundary of the ecosystem. So it's inside the swamp ecosystem. Um, so the mining company will tell you the, the mine is outside the refuge, but that's a political boundary. The ecosystem that's at rest, the mine is inside, it's right on the edge. And that's a really important point for your listeners and viewers to understand. Um, and Joshua, this is not the same size as a project that you first got involved in the Okefenokee over, but it is similar in terms of, you know, what will be happening there. In the late 90s, corporate giant DuPont sought to strip mine 38,000 acres in the same area. Uh, by comparison, this seems a lot smaller. Yeah, and uh, that's correct. DuPont tried to mine the entire eastern boundary of the swamp. Um, and I was part of a, a team that fought successfully to block that. And the current mining company learned from that experience. And so even though ultimately they want to mine virtually the same total number of acres, uh, instead of trying to do it all at once, they're trying to do it in these little bite-sized chunks in the hopes that the public and the regulators will be fooled into thinking, well, a 500 or 1,000-acre project at a time won't be so bad. But when they cobble all these mini-projects together, uh, the impacts will be devastating. So Twin Pines is the company that's behind the new project. Um, they've asked to mine, initially, they wanted 2,500 acres or so. They've since scaled that back to just 582. Um, Logan, why does that not reassure advocates for the Okefenokee? Well, Oftentimes, those are just kind of like step one in the process. They may kind of guise it in this is a test or this is a, just a preliminary step or whatever, but oftentimes that often expands. Thereafter, it's a kind of akin to getting your foot in the door and you maybe just get started and you say, well, you see the damage was not pronounced, so we're, we're seeking permission to expand this. So that is why we feel it's very important to stop it from even beginning, even from the test phase. And that's, that's largely the area of the concern. And one other thing I would like to make a point related to that is uh, Twin Pines is kind of cloaking this in. It'll bring some much-needed jobs to an area that probably could use some jobs. But the problem with this is the jobs that they will add will, for all intents and purposes, be temporary. I mean, you don't see any mining and phosphate jobs that much in Clay County and, and Bradford County anymore. Once they've exhausted the minerals and gotten what they can, they, they will leave, and those jobs will disappear as well. So we're talking about a strip mining proposal near the Okefenokee Swamp. Have you been to the swamp? What concerns or questions do you have? You can join our conversation by calling us at 904-549-2937. Or you can send an email to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also message us on social media. 
Um, Josh Marks, why is there a special urgency now? What has been happening just in the last month that that should give people who are concerned about the Okefenokee concern? So uh, within the last few weeks, and uh, Georgia regulators released draft permits for the initial 582-acre mining proposal, and the permits are devastating. Uh, what the impacts that will happen to the swamp from the mining are as bad now as they have been uh, for the last several years. Um, so we are calling on folks in Georgia and Florida and really throughout the world, because the Okefenokee is a world-renowned um, ecosystem, to reach out to Georgia regulators to ask them to deny the permit. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the Georgia legislature has been wrestling with this issue for the last three years, and a, a good bill that would prohibit mining on this trail ridge uh, in perpetuity has been blocked for the last three years. And instead, last week, a bill was introduced in the Georgia House of Representatives that would fast track the issuance of permits into the future and would override judicial review of those permits. Um, and so we are calling on folks in Georgia, as well as Florida, to reach out to the governor and Georgia legislators to say no to that bill and instead say yes to the bill that will protect the swamp forever. You know, it seems like that bill that you're talking about threatens to confuse the issue because there are a lot of people concerned about these permits that have been issued the bill is structured as a moratorium on mining, um, but as you say, other elements of it would fast-track future permits, and it wouldn't prevent mining on the Twin Pine site. That's right. The moratorium is designed to confuse people, and we're calling it a wolf in sheep's clothing because the moratorium would not apply to this existing 500-acre proposal. Um, it would not apply to other types of mining technologies that are threatened to be used on Trail Ridge. Um, and the moratorium really isn't necessary, Anne, because Twin Pines has said that it would take them four years to complete this first phase and that they had no intention of filing for additional permits until the first phase was done. So if it's going to take them four years to complete it, and the moratorium is only three years long, you can, you can see clearly that the moratorium really doesn't do anything. Um, and it's confusing people into thinking, well, the day has been saved when the small print in the back of the bill forces Georgia regulators to expedite issuance of permits, and it restricts the ability of the judicial system to, uh, to correct permits that are issued uh, improperly which we think is unconstitutional. So we think this is a really, really bad bill that threatens the Okefenokee for decades. Mark Woods, uh, Georgia's Environmental Protection Division, released their draft permit late on a Friday afternoon earlier this month. And reporters at least know that's notorious time for <laughs> dumping news that people want buried or don't want to see reported. Right. Yeah, I appreciate um, folks like Logan and Joshua staying on top of this because it has, it's had many twists and turns. I wrote about it in the fall and had to kind of refresh myself on, um, you know, it was started out kind of in the Army Corps hands and then, uh, yeah, now it's in the state hand. This is kind of the, uh, Logan and I were talking about this beforehand, this is kind of the the end, feels like the end of the road. So it's, do you stop it here or does it happen? Um, and yeah, kind of back, I was thinking to when you asked me why it's special. So, you know, not the science part of it. You know, I've been up there if you go to Stephen Foster State Park on the uh, on the western edge, it's a beautiful state park, and it's an international dark sky park. Which to get that designation, you have to have kind of these amazing dark skies where you see stars. We kind of forget how many stars there are out till we go out west. This is a place in the the east where you can f experience that. Um, the wildlife and the, the the refuge is just you know if you get out there in a boat, do a boat tour or a canoe. Um, you're just kind of in another world. It's an amazing place to visit. So I kind of, if people haven't spent a day in the Okefenokee, I highly recommend it. 
the size is massive. It's, you know, about larger than the city of Jacksonville or thereabouts, um, which you can imagine. Yeah, 700 square miles, and I think we're 840. So, yeah, almost the size. That that gives a good visual. So this issue, as you say, Mark, has been batted around from agency to agency. It's gone from being evaluated at the federal level to now basically being in the hands of the state. Um, Logan, I think that there's some people that would think, well, you know, the state lawmakers are closer to this issue. They'd probably be a little more attuned to the environmental um, uh, sanctity of that place. Um, but that's not always the case. No, that's not. And and that's why it takes, I guess, advocacy groups and entities like yours bringing attention to these issues because um, a lot of times they go unseen. And, and a lot of times when a legis- someone in the legislature just really maybe views this as just a bunch of swampland that should be utilized for other purposes or something. And therefore, when they see a proposal that could bring jobs to an area that probably could use some jobs, they get all on board. And so they start viewing it from a different lens than someone who might, who appreciates it for its natural grandeur. And, and looking at it deeper as to what is the role does it play in the ecosystem of the, not just the immediate area, but the region around. Like we were talking earlier, let's say that the St. Mary's dries, starts drying up or it's water levels changes. That impacts people in St. Mary's and Fernandina who are accustomed to certain water levels coming from the St. Mary's. Uh, it impacts people who maybe kayak that kayak and boat parts of those rivers or have docks on the rivers. So it, it's, it's a type thing that a lot of people do not look any deeper than just what's on the surface. And so we try to encourage people to do that. And it could be not just flow, but of course that affects water quality. Yes, it does. Yeah. And so those are, it, the impacts could be more substantial than a lot of people think. We've got a call, Tim from Orange Park. Good morning, Tim. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Yes, good morning. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, does the Okefenokee directly or indirectly affect swamps all the way down to Gainesville? And, uh, and it just seems to me that this whole thing is, Reminds me of the Pogo saying, we have met the enemy and they is us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Um, Mark, I want to, or excuse me, Josh, I want to push that question to you, if that's all right. Um, in terms of the downward impacts, I know that Logan mentioned the rivers that are impacted. Of course, the Suwannee heads through a lot of places in Florida. Um, what are the impacts downstream, you know, downstate, I guess, in Florida from this? Yeah, so the Okefenokee, is part of a greater ecosystem that includes the Osceola National Forest that extends down into northern Florida. Um, You know, at one time when there were discussions about reintroducing Florida panther up into north Florida, the Okefenokee Osceola ecosystem was a targeted area for such relocation. So uh, it really it is important for you and and your listeners to understand this is not just a Georgia issue. This is a really, this really is a Georgia Florida issue. Um, and even though Georgia has exclusive jurisdiction over the regulatory regime right now, it, it's super important for listeners like that caller and others to, to reach out um, to Georgia and say, Hey, this is not, simply something that happens within your borders. This is affecting us as well. And uh, so that's why I'm glad that there's understanding and appreciation um, from folks in the Jacksonville area that this really is uh, a Florida issue as much as it is a Georgia issue. And I want to note, we did reach out to the Twin Pines mining folks um, to see if they wanted to participate in today's show or to even phone in. Um, They declined, but they did send a statement. It said in part... Um, that their plan will be, quote, fully protective of the Okefenokee. Um, and the president said of that company said that scientists who publicly oppose the project, um, who've had four plus years to present credible science to back their claims, never did. He says that they have instead manufactured a lot of misinformation and continue to create drama. Um, Josh, what have the scientists said um, and what administrations and agencies do they represent? Well, um, 
Steve Engel, he's the president of Twin Pines. He's simply false uh, with that statement. Uh, there are over 90 scientists from Georgia and around the country who have signed repeated letters to Georgia regulators saying that they've closely and thoroughly analyzed the hydrologic impacts of the mine on the swamp. And there's uniform agreement that the mine will draw down the swamp's water levels, tripling the frequency of drought with potentially devastating impacts on the swamp. Uh, the leading scientists are independent. They're not hired by the mining company. They're not hired by any regulators. They're not paid by any environmental groups. Uh, they're doing that because they believe in sound science and they believe in the protection of the Okefenokee. The lead scientist on this project is one of the foremost hydrologists in the country. He's from the University of Georgia in Athens. Um, and, and I just want to point out the fact that uh, Twin Pines has a history of misrepresentation uh, and law violation going back to the beginning of this project, Anne. Uh, so, you know, when they throw accusations out, you really have to consider the source and the track record. Um, they misrepresented uh, multiple times on their own permit applications about the nature of the land that they controlled, and they had repeated violations of state law governing their exploratory drilling, for which they were recently fined $20,000 by Georgia regulators. Uh, they've committed violations in Northeast Florida at their prior mine site, uh, in Stark, and their affiliated companies have caused multiple problems uh, in Northeast Georgia. So that is a company that has no business operating in the middle of a desert, much less next to a globally important resource like the Okefenokee. So the Trail Ridge, um, which is the target for mining, is actually kind of the eastern border of the swamp and looms about 50 feet higher than the water levels in the Okefenokee. But this ridge is an ancient barrier island, um, and it stretches actually from Stark up into Jessup, Georgia. So it is a uh, far-reaching, um, I guess, resource for people that have used it for mining. And Logan, as you've said, Stark is a good example of right. what this process looks like. Not everybody has been to Stark and not everybody has seen. So explain to us what you're talking about. Well, for those who are unfamiliar with it, the phosphate mining in North Florida, Northeast Florida, was very prominent for a while. And as well as sand mining. And that mining got started at the lower end of the trail ridge system there and went on for years. And like I said, one only has to... Now, people who grew up in this area were intimately familiar with a lot of that when it was going on. And um, But if somebody is wanting to know, all they have to do is take a drive down to maybe to Kingsley's Lake or some other, the few existing lakes, and they will see that the landscape has been pretty much irreparably changed, and it has not returned to its natural state. So once the harvesting is done and the natural resources are largely exhausted, then the mining companies move out, the jobs go with them, and the, the touted benefits of it disappear. And that's that's what we fear for Southeast Georgia as well. Now, I do also want to make a point, and it's kind of tangential to this. For some reason or another, Florida and Northeast Florida is beginning to think of South Georgia as its dumping ground. There is a huge landfill not too far from there in Carlton County. There's also coal ash that is brought up from Puerto Rico through the coal mines, I mean the coal generators down in Puerto Rico is comes through the Jacksonville port and is hauled up to South Georgia for disposal. And some people might remember a barge that was loaded with that coal right. ash basically went adrift and lost its entire load of coal ash on the shores of Mayport. Right. So I, I think that we as citizens should bear a little bit of responsibility for this and think a little bit about what are we doing to th this area of the country. We've got a call, Jesse from Fernandina Beach. Good morning. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Hi, how are you guys? Very good. Go ahead. Um, my question is for Florida residents 
that are wanting to express their opposition to this, what would your recommendations be as far as reaching out and how we can you know, facilitate that? And I will take my question off there. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jesse. It's a good question. Do uh, people in Florida have any say in this matter, Logan, since this is a Georgia issue? Yes, I, I'm, I'm glad that she posed that question because uh, we put a number of links where people can utilize the links to both comment on the proposed permitting. Um, we have those links in our Take Action site on our website, but we also have it on our social media sites, and it'll appear prominently in our newsletter that'll be coming out on the 1st. That'll provide them with some options, but we do hope to pre- keep providing options as they emerge where people can comment, but they can also attend and participate in virtual meetings related to this. So a lot of that is listed. If people are interested, they can go to those locations and find some of those options. And we would certainly welcome engagement and involvement by people in Florida, Northeast Florida, and on down through the state. Uh, Joshua Marks, you know, people have commented on this. Most of the comments have been in opposition very little support for um, outside of lawmakers. And this is not just an environmental issue. This is a political issue. Um, money plays a role. How does it How does it impact this debate? Yeah, so um, money is at the heart of this debate, and uh, the mining company has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions and lobbyists to put pressure on the governor and all the senior decision-makers in Georgia. Governor Kemp alone has received nearly $100,000 from the mining company and its lobbyists. Um, And that, we believe, is the only reason that Georgia regulators have entertained this project for so long in the face of massive scientific evidence of impact, in the face of massive legal concerns, and most importantly, hundreds of thousands of comments against this project that have been submitted over the last five years. Uh, and it's, it's atrocious when you hear about our government leaders, in essence, selling out one of our country's greatest natural resources to industry that not only has never done this type of mining before, has never operated in Georgia, uh, but has such a terrible track record. It just seems to be such a dereliction of duty and a violation of the public's faith. And that's a really important issue for us to spotlight, to try to hold the governor and other legislative leaders accountable. Um, Mark Woods, just very briefly, you know, you've, there have been a lot of battles that have been won and some lost. What do you think are the odds on, you know, saving the Okefenokee from this particular mining plan? Um, yeah, I don't know. They, they, they've been following it much more closely than I have. It feels, you know, it's back and forth and back and forth. It, it does feel a little frightening now. And like I said before, the the concern, I think, like is was summed up in that long U.S. Fish and Wildlife statement where they said, poses a risk of permanent and irreversible impacts. You don't want to do something that you can't go back and change. And again, the Everglades is a great example. And, and water and hydrology is so complex. Um, I, I did a column a, a couple months ago about, uh, the, about Carr Smith, who passed away since then, but he described it in kind of layman's terms for me. Just said the picture of the Okefenokee is this giant shallow plate. And it's full of water. If you compromise an edge of that plate, what happens? And the mining company will tell you we're not going to compromise it, but what if they're wrong? Well, Logan Cross with the Sierra Club, Attorney Joshua Marks, Times Union columnist Mark Woods, thanks to all of you for being here and talking about this important issue. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And in just a minute, Love on the Great Plains. We talk with the stars of a local production of the Rogers and Hammerstein Classic.
Welcome back. Uh, it's a musical that defined the modern genre and the first collaboration by the legendary theater duo Rodgers and Hammerstein. I'm joined now by the cast of the Alhambra Theater's production of Oklahoma, which is staged through the end of March. Welcome, Alex Blanco, who plays Curly, the show's male lead. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having us. Isabel Fidel? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> who plays Lori, who is the female lead. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Melvin Nash, who uh, stars as Will Parker. Hello, hello. And Natalie Drake, who plays the flirt- the flirtatious Addo Annie. Hey. Hello. Thanks for being here. So, Isabel, this musical is a classic. It's filled with some of the most recognizable earworms in musical theater. Had you seen Oklahoma before you starred in it? I did. I only saw the revival version, however. So I haven't seen the, like, traditional Oklahoma that everybody knows. I saw the revival, and it was very different, but it was enjoyable for sure, especially the corn and chili that we had in the intermission, which was <laughs> definitely a treat. Um, it was a, a different take on what how we do it, but it was awesome. Alex, you play Curly, who is one of the two male characters pursuing Isabel's character of Lori. Mm-hmm. Um, is this a fun role to play? Oh, my God. Absolutely. He is the uh, strapping cowboy that I never thought I'd be able to play <laughs> ever. And going on stage with these fringed up chaps in the cowboy hat is the fantasy that I never thought I could ever be <laughs> playing on a stage before. But it's it's such an iconic role that I'm just like gobsmacked that I'm able to like get up on stage and sing these iconic songs every night. And you're singing one of the musicals, its first song and really one of its yeah. most iconic, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. Oh, it really yeah. sets the stage for the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it's it's insane, especially this is Rodgers and Hammerstein's first ever, like, huge collaboration that put them on the map and to be able to just sing it every night. It's just like, every, every night it's a little just, like, eye-opening to me. It's like, hey, I'm lucky enough to get to do this every single night. Uh, Mel Nash, you play Will Parker, the romantic lead in what is kind of the secondary story in Oklahoma. Um, This show is set in 1906 and it Mm -hmm. premiered in 1943. So how are you able to relate to the character and his storyline? I think it's interesting because Will is uh, the way I look at him is kind of like me. He's a little bit over the top. Um, He's hopefully a little less intelligent than I am, I hope. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, I grew up in Texas, so country's not too crazy for me. Um, But I grew up with these songs as well. And so just like hearing everything always puts me kind of like in a nostalgic mind state or mindset. Um, But as far as the character himself, I'm not sure that I relate too much to 1905 too much. Natalie, you have a fun role as Addo Annie. Um, And the character, is it played true to the original version or are there ways that she's been kind of modernized and updated? So um, when I looked at the Oklahoma revival, I definitely saw that there was a lot of updating with um, just style and everything like that. But personally, uh, when I see Ado Annie and you look at the context of her, she's more than just being played as stupid. I see a lot of people just try to play her as an airhead. And with me, she reminds me a lot of myself when I was a teenager. You know, you're starting up, you don't know what love is. You don't know really what the common mechanics are, but uh, so I try to play her more as easily excitable. She's more naive to the world and she's ready to jump in and become an adult. I wonder if any of you have thought just about kind of where this landed in the common zeitgeist of the time. I mean, Oklahoma wasn't even a state um, Mm. when the musical takes place. It was a territory. And when the show was first staged on Broadway, the country was still in the midst of the Great Depression are kind of coming out of it. Mm-hmm. World War II was was happening. Um, and yet this musical really sort of celebrates an American ideal. Yeah. Um, how does that resonate with you? I, I mean, for me, I think we're kind of in a time where that is being lost. So I think anything that can bring us back to that mindset is a really good thing. Um, I think it's beautiful. I mean, I really do think it's beautiful. It reminds us of what America started as right like they're a bunch of proud people and when we sing Oklahoma we're Mm -hmm. all there having that joy and that love of where we are and where we live and it's kind of like what really defined America going forward up until perhaps recently Mm -hmm. yeah no this musical was made back yeah it was it was around the time of the height of World War II once America finally got into the war and a lot of the media around the time was just a lot of propaganda and patriotism that really just needed to uplift the American, the American spirit. And yeah, just singing these songs that were anthems back mm-hmm. then. Like these were like 
top chart songs, Rodgers and Hammerstein. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they were. actually, though, yeah, they actually. Were, they were. And yeah, to be able to sing them every night and realize, hey, these were legendary songs that we are mm-hmm. singing now and revolutionary for their time that were, th- these shows were defining for musical theater. And a lot of people consider Oklahoma as the first modern day musical. Right. And so this was a story, uh, Isabel, that it was the first musical to kind of unite all of the different elements into the storytelling. You know, the, the dance is part of it. The, the, you know, the spoken words are part of it, but the music is a big part of moving the plot forward. Mm-hmm. So it really carries a lot of weight when you're singing. It's not just you know, kind of a song. It really is part of the the entire setup of the show. Oh, yeah. I mean, specifically with Lori, Many a New Day is such a, a moment for her to realize that, like, she is independent, but she does want love. Like she is headstrong as headstrong can be, um, but she is a hopeless romantic when it comes down to it. Um, she wishes that she could have something and be as spontaneous as Ado Annie is, but she knows that's just she's put on this character and she has to continue this character in order to get what she wants and she does in the end. So, yeah, Ado uh, Annie and Will Parker, they aren't the main focus in the play, but they are still captivating. They provide a lot of comic relief. Um, Mel and Natalie, how do your characters sort of fit into the overall scheme of the show? So I definitely think that um, our characters specifically play a lot towards the more bold and I guess the more youthful side Mm. of the community that we see in Oklahoma. It's a very community-based show. Um, And throughout it, we're seeing different spectrums of love. You know, I think that love is very uh, wide and broad depending on it can be cold it can be romantic it can be truly heartwarming but it all just depends and for this this is kind of a story to the side that shows uh, a different perspective of what it is like to fall in love at a such a young age Mm -hmm. no yeah i think it's really cool because the characters are really really ridiculous (laughs) Um, and you would think that they wouldn't fit into a story that has someone like Curly and Lori and Judd with all this incredible drama going on in the show, but they really do fit right in because they tie right into the community. You know, there are these moments in the show where you see their connection with the main characters. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of just, I agree, it's it's a different version of love. It's a much more uplifting, kind of fun, over-the-top version of love that you're <laughs> invested in. But it's nice, relaxing break, if you will, from like what else is going on in the story. Mm-hmm. So the Alhambra has already started this production. It's been on the stage for a couple of weeks and it will be there until March 31st. So, um, Isabella, what can people expect when they come? Um, definitely a fun menu. Um, <laughs> three of us here have meals named after us, which oh, yeah. I think is super fun and exciting um, and just fun. It's a it's a story that goes it's a roller coaster of emotions, but you will get anything and everything you want out of it. You will cry, you will laugh until you can't stop laughing. It's just it's a beautiful dancing. The dream sequence is just a wonderful number mm. in the show. It's so fun mm. to do every night. And the singing on top of it, all different types. You got belting, you got legit. It's just <laughs> overall so much fun. Alex, what food's named after you? Oh my God, I got Curly's Country Fried Steak. I had yeah. it the other day. <laughs> it was so good. Excellent. Well, Alex, Isabella, Melvin, Natalie, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. And stick with us in just a minute. WJCT's resident gearhead gives us a preview of the region's most prestigious car show. And we're back. It's a competition of excellence or a concours d'elegance, if you're French. I'd like to say bonjour now to our own Dan Scanlon, WJCT reporter. Dan, this is the event's 24th year in Amelia Island. No, 29th. Island. Whoop. 29th. Stand corrected. What's the appeal? 
The appeal is if you're a gearhead, a NASCAR fan, a race fan, an art fan, a collector, this is the place to go. We have Rick Hendrick as the honoree for the Sunday show, and he, of course, just won his two cars, one first and second at the Daytona 500. So he'll be there with his personal car collection, plus the Camaro NASCAR that he drove or that his gang drove at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. But there are Bugatti race cars. There's going to be Porsche race cars. There's going to be American classics, fiberglass classics uh, on the Sunday show. And then Saturday, 350 local and regional car geeks will show up on the same lawn for the Cars and Coffee so that you could have actually brought your car to show there on the same grounds. And then across the street is the Radwood, which is the 1980s and 1990s sports cars, which are getting very popular now. The kickoff is actually at 1 o'clock at Main Beach, Fernandina on Friday. There is a car show there, and then there's a Concord of Lemons for the Weird, the Strange, and Oh Yes, My 1988 Alfa Romeo will be there with some Gorilla Tape holding a Fender piece together. That enchanting little (laughs) car of yours. Yes, but this is a major, major charity event, and it has been since Bill Warner started it back in 1996. Community Hospice, Shop with Cops, a lot of Spina Bifida of Jacksonville all have received Thousands and thousands in donations from this event, which will continue four million plus. So that's a wonderful reason. That said, the ticket price for an adult is one hundred and seventy-five dollars. There is a discount for military and and kids under twelve are free. But the main beach show is free. Well, the, some of the classics on Friday will do a road tour of the island, and they'll all sa- end up on Center Street at noon on Friday. You can just wander around, have some shrimp, uh, nearby restaurants, and look at some of these classic cars that have driven through the area. Um, and then at one o'clock, go down to Main Beach and, and look at the, uh, the the grand opening uh, car show on the Concord de Lemon uh, on the beach. And Saturday, there's seminars with NASCAR stars, Indy 500 stars on Friday and Saturday. There's a film project that's going to be done with Pikes Peak car. You know, the Brumos Porsche actually had a car race on Pikes Peak with David Donahue the past two years. So even though the dealership is gone, the museum funded that. So you name it, it's there. And be aware, you can't park on the side of the road, near the venue, but there is parking at the airport, etc. Well, Dan Scanlon, you'll be one of uh, 30,000 people or so going to that event this weekend. Um, thank you so much for the lowdown on what to expect and uh, drive safely. Vroom, vroom. <laughs> Up next, why do stars twinkle when planets do not? Stick around and find out. Life South Community Blood Centers, providing blood and patient services to the local hospitals, serving patients in this community. Donating blood with Life South helps save lives. More at lifesouth.org to find a blood drive near you. Congaree Pen, dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com. Join me, Courtney Lewis, this Sunday at 7pm on WJCT's Classical 24, 89.9 HD2 for the Jacksonville Symphony's encore performance of Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1. Information at jacksymphony.org. Spyware secretly installed on smartphones, harvesting personal information. You start to think about what was on my phone. You know, what could they have potentially gained access to? That's a conversation that goes on in your head for a long time. I'm Carol Hills, human rights advocates and journalists in the country of Jordan, targeted by spyware. That's next time on The World. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. What will the Michigan primary tell us about the path ahead for the Democrats and Republicans? 
Nikki Haley is running out of time to narrow the gap between her and Donald Trump. And for Joe Biden, what message will he take away from the state's sizable Arab American electorate? Swing state politics and all the latest for Michigan, next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. I'm joined now by the inimitable Eddie Whistler, director of the Planetarium at Mosh, the Museum of Science and History. Eddie, welcome. Yay! Eddie, you're going to be here once a month now to give yes. us kind of a night sky preview mm -hmm. and to talk a little bit about outer space and yeah, science. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what's, what's catching your eye right now? Well, if you go out tonight, you can find my favorite constellation. It's cliche, but it's real. And you'll love it because it's just bright. And that's why I love it. And it's Orion is front and center if you face south in the nighttime sky. Why is that a cliche? Uh, because everybody loves Orion. Everybody knows Orion. But of course, it's because he's a handsome guy. He is one of those constellations that actually looks like what they're supposed to be. Um, most of them are not. I mean, other than perhaps the dippers, which I the really dipper. <laughs> okay, so the dippers look like uh, there's. I'd say about ten percent of them look something like what they're supposed to be. The rest of them, there's one that's two, two stars connected by a single line. It's supposed to be a dog. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, you have to really lay out there and study the stars to come up with a dog. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh, objectively the worst constellation <laughs> you can. It's two stars, a single line. Should okay. be a pencil. So I want to talk to you about stars, because even if Orion is a cliche, you might go out and look at it tonight and you're going to notice something about it, like with a lot of stars. Oh, yeah. It's so poetic. It's going to twinkle. And people love the twinkling of the stars. But to somebody who is a professional astronomer, twinkle is a pain in the eye. It's horrible. It is distortion. It is have you ever, okay, imagine you put on a mask, you go to the bottom of a pool, and you look at people who are outside of the pool, and you look at their faces. Are their faces coming through the same way that it is just in regular conversation? I mean, sometimes they look like they're split in half almost. Split in half, warping, warbling. The, the, there's a fluid in the pool. You're at the bottom of an ocean of air above your heads, above all of our heads. And when we look at the twinkle in the stars, that only happens through the atmosphere. If you're, if you're in outer space, the stars are just solid beams of light coming, points of light, but coming straight at you, no distortion. And so all of that twinkling happens in the, in the atmosphere. And so there was a research proposal, um, a project proposal to remove the atmosphere from the earth, the cursed, life-giving atmosphere, but it got denied. And so now astronomers have to do other things. Who made such a proposal? I'm just joking. Oh, okay. Sorry, Eddie. <laughs> you know, it's the time where you kind of need an additional cup of coffee in the morning to perhaps catch all of the Eddie Whistler humor. There you go. Um, Think about it. That would be an undertaking. Well, I mean, we have managed to do a lot to change the atmosphere, I was, right? And other systems of the Earth, yeah. no doubt. Uh, so there are other ways. You could put a telescope in space. But the more interesting way is the next thing that we have to remove the cursed twinkle from the stars is something called adaptive optics. What's that? So how much time do we have? Um, you have a, like two and a half minutes. Oh, we could lay back and really... Okay, so... You have all of this warping. You have this turbulent atmosphere overhead, and that distorts the image. But what we have are these adaptive optics systems that we built into these enormous, incredible telescopes around the world that actively remove the warping from the light that arrives at the telescopes. Now, how they do this is they fit these telescopes with these adaptive optics systems. Um, on the backside of a, of a deformable mirror, because telescopes are many things mirrors, right? Um, a, a mirror is what collects the light and focuses it on the instruments that are going to you know, detect uh, the different characteristics of the light that we're interested in. And so what they're going to do is they fit them with these actuators, like little muscles by the thousands at the back of these mirrors, and... They have a way, let's just say it's a way, to tell precisely 
how warped the light is, and then these actuators move a thousand times a second, thousands of them moving a thousand times a second to precisely unwarp or undo the, the terrible warping that the atmosphere has done. So it's the deformable mirror that then puts that, uh, that light back into, into its, its, its high definition. You get preciseness at the end by undoing the warping of the atmosphere overhead. That's an extraordinary uh, level of work to go to to try to normalize that light beam. No but, doubt. How awesome are humans? Well, it's also kind of nice to see the twinkle, though, right? Uh, you know, if, yeah, go outside and enjoy it. But if you want to understand the universe, it's the worst thing that you could do. And so it's really expensive to put telescopes up in space. And so having something like this is just allows us to have as good a view into the universe. And you don't, if something breaks, you don't have to have astronauts go up into space to fix the thing. It's right there. You just, you make the fixes. Well, Eddie Whistler from MOSH, thank you so much for being here and explaining that twinkle. Oh, you're so welcome. And that's our program. You can email your feedback or suggestions to First Coast Connect at wjct.org. The program is rebroadcast at 8 o'clock tonight, and it's archived on wjct.org and your favorite podcast platform. David Luckin is the executive producer of First Coast Connect. It's produced by Stacey Bennett. Kathy Waterman is our associate producer, and Brady Corum directs the show. Join us Thursday when we meet the student creators of a contemporary Black history curriculum for the Duval County High Schools. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.